Um, we're starting a study in the book of Romans today. And it's always hard for me to introduce a big book study. I mean, where do you start? Where do you end? Um, you could go on for weeks just doing the introduction. I don't want to do that. I have over four, I counted, I have over 4,300 pages of material on Romans on just one shelf in my study over at the house. And additionally, I have background commentaries, New Testament surveys, Pauline study materials that all deal with Romans on other shelves in my house. I also have 10 Romans commentaries on my computer. Um, I have more than 10,000 pages of material, not counting the commentaries in my office. And yet that represents only a tiny fraction of the available material on Romans in commentaries, theology and Bible study journals, and scholarly monographs, and so on. Paul's letter to the Romans is one of the most influential pieces of literature in the history of the Western world. Some people think of it as the most important treatise on the Christian faith ever written. It was through reading this letter, Romans, take and read, the Spirit said to the great Augustine, and his life was transformed. Martin Luther called it the most important piece in the New Testament. It was while reading Romans that John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed and his life radically altered. Romans was, and I quote, like a bombshell that fell on the playground of the 20th century's most important theologian and Bible scholar, Karl Barth. It's this letter, this bombshell, this most important piece in the New Testament, the words that changed John Wesley, who then changed the world, it's this letter that we're going to study for the better part of this year. We're going to find some powerfully life-changing truths on every page. But we don't just want to study isolated truths. We want to see how the letter as a whole brings together truths that we've already heard, but don't know how they connect. It's this letter, the one on which I have more than 10,000 pages of scholarly and pastoral commentary, that I intend to introduce to us in about the next 20 minutes. That's like going to Cabela's an hour before closing and stocking up for your upcoming trip and being out before the doors close. It's, it's like playing around a golf during your lunch break. I don't know how we're going to do it. How do I introduce Romans? In some ways, reading Romans is like reading a mystery story. When, when we go on vacation, I usually pack a, a mystery novel, usually one of Agatha Christie's, in my bag. Mystery writers like Christie, they like to throw out all kinds of hints about the identity of the bad guy as the story unfolds. And most readers do just what I do. Right at the very beginning, they begin building a theory about who the bad guy really is. But there's always stuff that doesn't fit the theory, right? Why would the rich duke of Northumberland kill a poor woman he didn't even know? doesn't make any sense until we learn that the poor woman was the only child of the duke's father's first wife, that Spanish woman, you know, how that thing goes, right? Well, like a mystery story, St. Paul and Romans foreshadow some of his arguments chapters before he makes them. 
And we readers, we already start working on our theories. Ah, that's what Romans is really about. But there are those stubborn passages that just won't fit into our framework. We need to be on our guard. So at the beginning of this study, I want to tell us we need to be on our guard against forcing our own thoughts and theories onto the text. Otherwise, what we're going to get out of Romans is exactly what we bring to it already. And we're going to miss what God really wants to say to our hearts and our minds. And we need to pay special attention to those stubborn passages that refuse to fit our theories. Those are always the ones that have something important to say to us. Now, that being said, we don't have to come to Romans with trepidation. We, if we belong to God through faith in Jesus, have received the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We can come to this great letter confident that God will be our teacher. We don't have to figure this all out like we could do that anyways. We just have to obey what God speaks to us. God did not give us his spirit to satisfy our curiosity but to conform us to the image of his son. And he will use Romans to do that in our lives. Here's something else to keep in mind. Because the scope of this letter is so large, some scholars and and pastors have approached it as if it were a general treatise written to all Christians of all times. And it's easy to see why they do that. Romans handles the timeless themes of the faith, the identity and the primacy of Jesus, the importance of the gospel, God's acceptance of sinners, of people who are on the wrong side, the nature of what, the spiritual life, and more. And yet this is not a treatise written to the church at large, but a, a letter written to the church at Rome, a church that had its own set of issues going on. One of those issues and that figures into this letter was a lack of unity in the church. We'll just that subject this morning. Another had to do with the church's attitude towards the government. We need to remember that this letter was written to a particular church, but that doesn't mean we can't apply its truths to our setting. We can, and we're wise to do so. For example, Christians today, more than I've seen in my lifetime, at least here in the United States, are thinking about and wondering how we ought to relate to government. The Romans wondered about that too. And Paul shares with them wisdom from God on that subject. That's chapter 13. Churches today still struggle with achieving the unity that Christ requires of us. The Romans did too. We need to remember that this letter was written to people living in Rome in the first century, and yet we need to think and pray about how its truths apply to people living in Branch County in the 21st century. Now, a little background on the church at Rome is going to help us do that. It's sometimes said that St. Peter, I mean, if you ask people who founded the Church of Rome, people say St. Peter did. He's often referred to as the first bishop of Rome. But it is highly unlikely, highly unlikely to the point that it is not even worth considering, that St. Peter founded the Roman church. And certainly St. Paul did not. When he wrote this letter, he'd never even been to Rome. It's most likely that Jews from Rome had learned about Jesus while in Israel, put their faith in him, and brought news about him back to Rome. We can see how that might be. 
from the book of Acts. St. Luke writes about the giving of the Spirit on the day that the church came into existence. It was during the Feast of Pentecost. So Feast of Pentecost is one of three feasts that all Jewish men living within an, an acceptable distance were compelled to attend. But people came from all over the world to the three feasts, including Pentecost. The disciples were in Jerusalem per Jesus' order, but lots of other people were there too. Luke tells us that there were Jews from every nation under heaven, that's Luke chapter 2, verse 5, at the feast. There were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. It was in Jerusalem that these Roman Jews and Jewish converts were first introduced to Jesus. Those who were convinced that he was the long-awaited Messiah went back to Rome and formed small groups of Jesus' followers. Their small groups grew into bigger groups. It wasn't long before there were many Jews in Rome who believed in Messiah Jesus. When they went to synagogue on Sabbath days, they tried to convince their fellow Jews that Jesus was their Messiah. Though their leaders had crucified him, God had vindicated him by raising him from the dead. As you can imagine, that kind of talk didn't go over well with everyone. In fact, it prompted some heated debates, maybe even riots. About a decade before this letter was written, the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. So that's something that's happened throughout history in different places. For example, at one point, all the Jews in London were expelled from London. But this is back in 47, about 47 AD. Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, and the Roman historian Suetonius claims the reason he did that was because of ongoing clashes in the city between Jews over someone named Crestus. Crestus is probably a Latin slurring of the Greek word Christos, which we pronounce Christ. So somewhere around 47 AD, the Jews were all expelled from Jerusalem. Aquila and Priscilla, who were to become great friends of the Apostle Paul's in Corinth, were among those Jews who were forced to leave. Now think about the effect that the Jewish expulsion had on the Roman churches. They were founded by Jews. They were comprised of Jews, though ever greater number of Gentiles were joining, and they were led by Jews. And then all of a sudden, the Jews were all gone. Within a month of the edict, all the Jews were out of Rome. And that left a huge leadership gap in the church. The Gentile Christians stepped up. And during those years when the Jews were all expelled from Rome, the churches actually grew. But the Jewish tone of the churches faded. The churches had been very much like synagogues prior to this time. And then Claudius died. And his successor Nero took the throne. Now Nero's no, Nero was no friend of Christians. Six or seven years after the writing of this letter, he began persecuting and killing Christians by the thousands in horrendous ways. I started to tell you some of those ways, but I'm not, I'll spare you that. They were terrible things he did. When Paul wrote this letter, the persecution hadn't yet started. As soon as, 
as Claudius was gone and Nero came to power, or very shortly afterwards, he rescinded Claudius's order and allowed ethnic Jews back into Rome. Some of the Jewish followers of Jesus, Aquila and Priscilla among them, returned to their home in Rome, but they found, think about it now, that the church had changed in their absence. The leadership positions were now filled with Gentiles. The Jewish flavor of the church, feeling like a synagogue, had faded. You can imagine that there would be some tension among the, the church members about how things ought to be done now. Specifically, there were questions about how Jewish the faith of Jesus ought to be. This letter was written to a church in that situation. Next week, we're going to get into the letter itself. We're not even going to get there today. But this morning, I want to introduce one of its key concepts, which the New Testament scholar Doug Moo calls the theme of the letter. It is the gospel I say it's one of the most important concepts because of its frequency, the frequency of that word's appearance, but even more because of its strategic placement in the letter. The body of the letter begins in verse 16 of chapter 1, right after the introduction. And it runs through chapter 15, right before the final greetings. Chapter 16 are all greetings. At both the beginning and the end of the body proper, Paul repeatedly refers to the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That was a technique used in letter writing known as an epistolary frame. By raising the subject at either end of the frame, Paul was letting his readers know that this letter is about the gospel. He saw the gospel as being of paramount importance. He knew that if the Roman Christians, Jews, and Gentiles had any hope of finding unity, it would be around the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, on one end of that frame, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation, for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, remember about the tension that existed in the church in Rome at this time. And you'll realize why Paul says that, why he includes everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And then he explains the connection between the gospel and the salvation he's just talked about. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. That may be the most important paragraph in the letter to the Romans. We're going to go into that in more detail. There's a whole bunch in there but I want you to keep it in mind. You might even want to commit it to your memory as we begin this study. Now look at verse chapter 15, because this is the other end of the frame, the other end of the body proper of the letter. Paul is winding it up. He's about to move on to the closing remarks and the greetings. But first he says, I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, the gospel. And just in case we missed it, he comes back to it one more time in verse 19. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which is northern Macedonia and the Serbo-Creation region there, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. By framing the letter with the gospel on either end, Paul is emphasizing its importance. The gospel's power for salvation, the church's hope for unity, 
But what is gospel? If you ask that question, someone's bound to say, the gospel is Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's the content of the gospel, or I should say that's a part of the content of the gospel. But it doesn't answer the question, what is gospel? If you're in town with somebody and someone points to my car and says, what kind of car is that? And you, because you recognize us, say, it's the kind with Shane and Karen Looper in it. You have said something true, but you haven't answered the question. The word gospel refers to an announcement, a news report about something that has happened, particularly something good. We have to keep that in mind as we read Romans. The gospel is news about something that has happened. It is not a prescription about something people should do. When we share the gospel, share the good news, we're not telling people what to do. Who wants to be told what to do? But what has happened? Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter shared the gospel. He didn't tell people what to do until they asked him, what should we do about this gospel? Now, the gospel has implications for people. This letter spells them out better than anywhere else. But the gospel is not telling people what to do or what to think. It's telling people what God has done through Christ. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. This means the gospel is not telling people that if they believe in Jesus, they can go to heaven when they die. It's telling people that the God of heaven has come to earth in his son, Jesus Christ, and died for sins and was raised again on the third day. Yet the good news which is about something that happened in the past, also has a future component to it. The Christ who won the battle with evil and death in the past will come to our rescue in the future. Now, let me give you an example of this from history, an example that would have been very well known by Paul's readers in Rome. The very word that we're considering, this key word of this letter, gospel, was already in use in and around Rome when Paul wrote this letter. It was used especially to describe the great Augustus Caesar's historic victory in the wars. So Augustus was the second of the Caesars, Julius Caesar first, then Augustus Caesar, but he was known at this time as Octavius. And he was waging war against the famous Mark Antony, and his Egyptian consort, Cleopatra. By the way, so this is the history you know from college books in the Bible. And there are other people in this history. For example, Herod the Great, who was king when Jesus was born. He's part of this story. Herod had originally allied himself with Cleopatra, with whom he had an on-again and off-again volatile relationship, and then switched sides and supported Octavius. Herod, you know, Herod named one of his sons Agrippa. He named that son Agrippa after Octavius's greatest general, Agrippa, who won this final battle. So all of these things come together. The deciding battle of the, the war was fought off the coast of 
of Western Greece near Actium. It was a battle at sea that finally decided the war. The residents of Rome, who were 700 miles away, were eager to hear any news they could hear about what was happening. See, Rome had been torn by civil strife for seven years, 10 years, actually. Some people siding with Octavius, other people siding with Mark Antony, everyone wanting to hear what was happening in the battle so far away. The rumor mill churned out stories day after day, but then one day in September... News of the war burst on the city like a flood. Octavius had defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra's forces, who, by the way, had gone to Egypt then and killed themselves after the war. Sometimes it's pictured as Mark Antony and Cleopatra killed themselves because of their love for each other. They killed themselves because there was no place left for them on earth. After the defeat, Octavius did what every general in that day did. He sent messengers back to Rome to announce his victory. You know how that would be described? He sent messengers back to Rome to spread the gospel of his victory. If you were a supporter of the Caesars, you would be very glad to hear that news. But you know what? It would be many months before Octavius returned to Rome and officially began his rule. So even though you'd heard the good news, the gospel of what had already happened, you would still be waiting for that to work itself out in the future. The experience of the, of the people in Caesar's Rome is analogous to our own. We have heard the gospel, the good news that Jesus triumphed over evil and over death according to God's covenant promise. And now we wait for him to return and set up his kingdom in its fullness. Until he does that, we have news to spread, a kingdom to serve, and a king for whose appearance we must make ready. And Romans will help us do all those things. Now, of course, we could refuse to believe that he won the war. We could deny that he's our rightful ruler. We could act like we have no ruler. But one day he's going to show up. And what will we do then? All right, let me wrap this up. And then next week we get into the, the letter itself. And I'd encourage you, read the letter. The letter's about 30 pages long. You can read this letter, not even that. You can read this letter this week. And maybe read it again during our study. Let me wrap this up with two final comments. So I've talked about Rome and Actium and Claudius and Nero and and before them Octavius and Mark Antony and Cleopatra and Herod. These are real people in real places from the pages of history. What you must always keep in mind is that Jesus, too, is a real person who lived and died and rose again in history. The gospel is real, not fake news, about a real person, not an imaginary figure, and what he did in real life. The gospel is the most important news story of all time. It's news. Secondly, as we read and study this book of Romans over the next months, if you decide I'm going to read this myself, I'm going to read this study so I'm ready for this series, keep in mind that it was written to the Romans. And yet because it's God-inspired, it's for us. 
Too often we read the Bible just the opposite way. We read it as though it was written to us, which makes us feel important, but as if it were written for someone else, which frees us from the responsibility of doing anything with it. If we forget this letter was written to Rome, we're going to end up reading our situation and our theories into it and fail to get out of it what Paul was really saying. But if we forget that God wants to speak to us through the letter today, we're going to miss something even more important. The good things that God intends to do in our lives now. So let's take a moment here at the beginning of this series to ask God to use this letter to the Romans in our lives. Let's invite his spirit to be our teacher during this series. As we listen to Romans and read it, to help us better understand God, our place in his son, and show us how to live for him until Christ returns. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. To ask God to use this letter in powerful ways in your life. I'm sure he wants to speak to you and to me through this letter. Let's ask him to do that. Father, would you use this letter in our lives in, in ways that are going to be transformational for us? I pray that you'll help us gain understanding of who and what you are. That you'll help us see what we are and how we can live. Lord, we invite you to triumph in our lives and to do it through this study. In Jesus' name, amen.